Let's go around the horn, and I'll assume if you give me a go, you've got no instrumentation problems. Booster? Go flight. Retro? Go flight. Fighter? Go flight. Control? Telcom? Go. TNC? Econ? Capcom? Go. Surgeon? Go. ONC? Go. AFC? NRAO? Go. Network? Go. You got everything up? Go. Hello, I'm Ian Christie, and this is Terranauts. Specifically, this is another episode of what we call the Terranauts Guide to Leaving the Planet, and it's one called The First Terranauts. It's actually the first part of a two-part episode, I think. It came about because I spent a lot of time this summer researching the early days of spaceflight. And in that research, I came to realize that Something pretty fundamental has changed in the last 70 years or so since we actually started building machines that could leave our planet. Uh, And that is that we actually started building machines that could leave our planet. You see, in the early days of spaceflight, no one would have recognized the word terranauts uh, or even the term spacecraft engineer. They would have used words like visionary or maybe pioneer. Eventually, they would coin the term rocket scientist to describe someone particularly brilliant um, who was a scientist or an engineer. But the fact was that building and operating spacecraft was seen as something so new, so outside the normal experience, that it was still literally the realm of science fiction and not of daily fact. How far we have come since those days... In our modern society, it is impossible to imagine a day without space. We use space assets for obvious things like communicating words, pictures, and data around the globe, but we also use it to grow crops efficiently and secure our financial institutions, to name a couple of applications. Uh, But my point is not the importance of space. That's a topic I could and have gone on about at length. No, uh, what I'm talking about here is the normalcy of it. Today, if I tell you that I had a career in space, you might say that it sounds interesting. You would not say that it sounds impossible. If your son or daughter told you that they wanted to work in the space business, you would think that was being pretty practical. You would not think they were crazy. Which is what Werner von Braun's parents and everyone else who knew him thought he was when he said he was going to do that when he was 17. Until, of course, he actually did it. So that's the story I want to tell today, the story of the first Terranauts, the people who did this job when you kind of had to be crazy to think you could, people who not only overcame the immense engineering and technical challenges of spaceflight, but who overcame their own fears and others' assertions that it couldn't be done. Those of us who do this work now, the modern Terranauts, stand on the shoulders of these giants. They not only invented the technology that allows us to do this job, they invented the job itself. So let's talk today about a couple of the first Terranauts, giants of our industry who were visionaries and pioneers. One of them was a rocket scientist, and the other one was a spacecraft engineer. Now, if we're going to talk about the first humans who went to space without ever leaving the ground, we're pretty much going to have to start with Werner von Braun. I often say that I and guests on this show are simply unexceptional people who have been part of exceptional events. 
This statement is not true of Dr. Werner von Braun. He had, from an early age, a dream of not only seeing humanity off the planet, but also of being a principal actor in that drama. Given that he started having those dreams in the 1920s, and he still lived to see a man travel to the surface of the moon and back, on top of a rocket, that he had a significant hand in envisioning, designing, and developing, it would be tempting to say that he succeeded beyond his wildest dreams. But that would be inaccurate. It would be more accurate to say that he succeeded exactly in realizing his wildest dreams. Now, I want to spend a bit of time talking about Werner von Braun's life, but before I do, I wanted to deal directly with the controversy that surrounds him. His conduct during the Second World War in Germany, his association with the Nazi party, and his role in developing a weapon that resulted directly and indirectly in the deaths of thousands of people have been discussed, dissected, and debated in literally thousands of pages of text, and I don't want to go over that territory here. Not because it doesn't matter, but because others have done it more justice than I ever possibly could. But before talking about von Braun, I think it's only fair for me to declare my reviewer's tilt when it comes to his story. Based on the reading that I have done, I think that von Braun's wartime activities, and in fact his approach to his life and his dream of leading humanity to the moon, can best be summed up by two humorous but telling comments. In the first, a commentator remarked that von Braun's autobiography, I Aim for the Moon, should have been subtitled, But Sometimes I Miss and Hit London. The second consists of a verse in a song by satirical songwriter Tom Lehrer from a song about Werner von Braun in the 1960s, and the verse goes, Once the rockets go up, who cares where they come down? That's not my department, says Werner von Braun. I think these comments capture the essence of von Braun's approach to this situation, as well as many others in his life. I believe that throughout his career and his life, von Braun was consistently presented with decisions, with trade-offs, and with compromises. I think he had an exceptional capacity to analyze the situation, make a decision that he believed was the best way to realize his dream of leading humanity off the planet, and then to implement that decision without looking back or second-guessing himself. I believe that is how he approached countless engineering and technical decisions, and also how he approached the political decisions that were to shape his life and the lives of hundreds of others. I do not think he was callous or indifferent to the effect of those decisions, but given that he succeeded in the one quest to which he devoted his life, I think he would say that he didn't regret any of it. Werner von Braun was born in Posen in Germany on the 12th of March in 1912. He was the middle son of a German aristocratic family. His father was a minister in the government of the Weimar Republic. He had a comfortable and privileged upbringing and a first-class education. It was also true that he had a first-class mind and an exceptional ability not only to analyze technical problems, but also to understand people, to recruit them into his endeavors, and to win their unflinching loyalty to him in his cause. By all accounts, he was not only intelligent, but charming, disarming, and when he needed to be, utterly fearless. 
At age 12, he started to experiment with rocket propulsion, affixing six large skyrockets to his coaster wagon and wheeling the wagon onto the Tiergartenstrasse in the upscale section of Berlin. Von Braun later described what ensued. Quote, I was ecstatic. The wagon was wholly out of control and trailing a comet's trail of fire, but my rockets were performing beyond my wildest dreams. Finally, they burned themselves out with a magnificent thunderclap, and the vehicle rolled to a halt. The police took me into custody very quickly. Fortunately, no one had been injured, so I was released in the charge of the Minister of Agriculture, who was my father. This quote is from an article in American Weekly in 1958. To keep him out of trouble, young Werner was sent to a boarding school at the age of 13, where he received a life-changing gift from his mother, a telescope, which ignited his curiosity about the universe. At age 15, he read a science fiction article in an astronomy magazine that described an imaginary trip to the moon. At that moment, a visionary was born. A passion was ignited in von Braun not just to observe the moon and the planets through his telescope, but also to find a way to travel there as well. 42 years later, at age 57, he watched it happen as the chief engineer, designer, and architect of the most powerful rocket that humanity has ever produced. He started that journey by obtaining a copy of Hermann Oberth's classic book, The Rocket into Interplanetary Space, which had been published two years earlier. It is said that he was surprised and a little distressed to find that it contained mostly mathematical equations, because he really disliked math and was, in fact, failing the subject in school. In a moment that was characteristic of von Braun, he decided that, despite his distaste for the subject, if traveling to space required learning math, then he would have to learn math. By the time he was 16, he implied himself to studying math and physics to such a degree that he was asked by the headmaster of his boarding school if he would fill in for a teacher who had fallen ill. According to Bob Ward, who wrote uh, Dr. Space, a biography of Werner von Braun, he not only taught the class, but, quote, he privately tutored some of the weaker students in the classes he taught, determined that all would pass their exams. And everyone did. Unquote. Which appears to me to be another classic von Braun moment of not only using his force of will to achieve his own goals, but also to bring everyone else along with him. It wouldn't be the last time. In 1930, von Braun graduated high school and moved to Berlin to begin studying for a degree in mechanical air engineering. His real aim was to meet and get a job working for Hermann Oberth, which he did. In a somewhat prescient foreshadowing of his entire career, his first job for Oberth involved not rocketry, but raising money. One such task involved standing in front of a display in a department store, and Bob Ward said that von Braun later recalled, I said, I bet you that the first man on the moon is alive today, somewhere on this earth. It so happened that Neil Armstrong was an infant in Ohio. Later that year, Oberth returned to Romania to continue teaching the group he left behind, including von Braun continued to beg and borrow what funds they could to continue to develop a working rocket. In 1932, they finally attracted the attention of the military and eventually agreed to work full-time for the Army in exchange for dedicated funding. Von Braun would work for the military, 
for the next 28 years in Germany and the United States. By 1935, the group had enough success with their A-2 rocket that they actually inspired a bidding war between the Army and the Air Force, at the end of which von Braun ended up, at the age of 23, as the civilian head of a military program with 11 million Reichsmarks of funding. But even then, von Braun viewed the military program as a means to an end. He, in fact, later admitted that, quote, we always considered the development of rockets for military purposes as a roundabout way to get into space, unquote. And so they began work on the A-4, which would eventually become the V-2, and on the facility on the Baltic coast, which eventually would become Pinamunda, which would be the site from which humanity would launch an object beyond the atmosphere for the very first time. The Pinamunda site was situated on the island of Usedom and included room for R&D, production, static testing, and a 250-kilometer test range for live flights. At the age of 25, in 1937, Werner von Braun became the center director. Famously, at least amongst his friends, from the time he was still being asked for ID in bars. But the new money and responsibility came with expectations. The rocket group was expected to stop working on experimental designs and advance the general field of rocketry, which is what they'd been doing. And now they were expected to start working on real weapons. Still... It was not until 1942 that the first attempts at launching a full-scale A-4 were made. In a previous episode, we talked about the A-4 and the significant engineering challenges that had to be overcome in developing it, so I won't go into that again. Suffice it to say that in October 1942, from Pinamunda, a vehicle was launched that however briefly crossed the boundary from the Earth's atmosphere into space, and in so doing created the very first Terranauts, and chief among them was Werner von Braun. It's actually a bit strange when you read about accounts of this time in 1942 and even 1943. It's hard sometimes to even realize that this was Nazi Germany at the height of the Second World War. There is a very real sense that the project at Pinamunda, while focusing on developing the weapon that was its chief purpose, was staffed by people who were way more focused on the technology and its other uses. I think that the A4 program is maybe not all that different than a lot of big development programs that I have been a part of that are staffed by people of passion and vision. I'd argue that it wasn't that different than Redstone and Jupiter programs in which von Braun also helped manage. But there were two big differences. The first was the fact that there was a war on. This was forcibly brought home in August 1943 when the Pinamunda site was raided by the RAF for the first time. The RAF sent over 600 heavy bombers to attack the site. The attack lasted almost an hour and caused extensive destruction and killed over 700 people, actually about half of whom were POWs and forced laborers because the RAF planners mistook the forced labor barracks for the quarters of the German technical personnel. In a bizarre twist of fate, it turned out that the main planner behind the raid was Duncan Sands, who would become one of Britain's foremost rocket scientists. His plan for the raid had deliberately targeted those buildings in the hopes of crippling the German space program by killing or injuring von Braun and his team. He would later admit that he was glad that the bombers missed their target. The second difference was that this was, in fact, Nazi Germany. 
This fact also began to assert itself as the war turned against Germany. Confronted by the bad news from the front and the worsening economic and social conditions, the Nazi party leadership increasingly degenerated into factionalism and power struggle. One of the main players in this power struggle was Heinrich Himmler, the head of the SS and the man in control of the Gestapo. Himmler began to see control of the rocket program at Pinamunda as a card he wanted to have in his hand. It was probably true that Himmler had had his eye on the rocket program for a long time. He had recruited von Braun to be an officer in the SS earlier in the war, and by recruited, uh, it very much appears to me that von Braun was um, made an offer that he couldn't refuse, in that if he had, not only he, but his whole program would likely have been in danger of cancellation with extreme prejudice. So von Braun became an officer in the SS. For obvious and good reasons, this is a fact that has been examined, discussed, and debated at length. My personal opinion, based on the reading that I have done, is that von Braun was never an enthusiastic in his participation in the SS or the Nazi party, only ever wearing the uniform when Himmler himself visited the facility, but he probably also never passed up the opportunity to use his status as a party member and an SS officer to benefit his rocket program. Eventually, von Braun, however, went from being an asset that Himmler wanted to recruit to being an obstacle that was in his way. When, in 1944, Himmler and the SS made a bid to take over operational control of the A4 program, von Braun was actually arrested and charged, basically, with being more interested in going to space than in building a weapon. It was probably close enough to the truth that the charges would have stuck. Only the personal intervention of von Braun's patron, General Dornberger, prevented him from being executed, frankly. Later on, as the war was coming to an end in February 1945, and it was clear that the Allies would win, von Braun convened a meeting of the senior technical staff of Pinamunda and put it to them that the future of their work very much depended on who they ended up being captured by. Being in eastern Germany, if they did nothing, they would eventually be captured by the Russians. In fact, the Red Army was actually drawing fairly near to Pinamunda at the time. They discussed their situation and decided, literally, to try to surrender to the Americans because they didn't believe the French would be interested in their rockets, and although they respected the British, they anticipated that they would not have the money after the war to fund a rocket program. There was also the small issue of the fact that their rockets had killed hundreds and thousands of British citizens, so they opted to find the Americans. With this decision began one of the truly strangest episodes in the history of armed conflict, one which in a very real sense was much more about the Cold War than it was about World War II. Von Braun and pretty much the entire staff of the facility at Pinamunda organized the removal not only of those staff from the facility, but literally all of the partially assembled rockets, spare parts, and much of the equipment that was not nailed down. They also removed literally tons of documentation. They loaded it onto two trains and a fleet of trucks that had been specially commandeered using von Braun's authority as an SS officer and forged authorization documents. And they shipped it all across Germany to the Harz Mountains, where they hoped to find American troops. As an extra precaution, before they eventually surrendered, von Braun had the entire load of documents secretly placed in an abandoned mine and sealed in with explosives. 
The location of the mine was a closely held secret by, by von Braun and a handful of close associates. With that job done, he sent his brother Magnus, who spoke English well, to literally wander down the mountain and find some American troops to tell them that the entire German rocket program was waiting to surrender to them. While von Braun and the other engineers and scientists were being interrogated by the Americans, the American army was busy trying to find and acquire V-2 rockets or parts of rockets that were quite literally not nailed down, particularly if those pieces were in the zones destined to be controlled by the other allies, as well as the secret cache of documents hidden by von Braun and his team once they had been told where to look. At the end, the treasure troves of rockets, parts, equipment, and documents would fill 16 Liberty ships for its trip from Antwerp to America. With the hardware secured, the United States started thinking about how to acquire the software needed to operate it, and that software was effectively in the heads and hands of the scientists, engineers, and technicians that had designed, developed, built, and tested it for the last decade. And so Operation Paperclip was born. Operation Paperclip is also truly one of the most bizarre chapters in military history. Whole books have been written about it, so I won't do more than summarize it here. Essentially, Operation Paperclip was the program by which the United States Army recruited the staff of the German V-2 rocket program to move to the United States and work for the United States Army in developing its own ballistic missile program. The German scientists, engineers, and technicians were offered initially one-year contracts, which would see them come to the United States as quote-unquote special employees of the Army, in return basically for having their families in post-war Germany cared for by the United States government. In the end, 127 personnel, the beating heart of the A-4 program, moved to the United States to Fort Bliss, Texas to continue their work. A great many of them would never leave the United States. Many of them would, including, of course, Werner von Braun, continue to work for the U.S. Army and then NASA, and would be part of the core team that eventually put Neil Armstrong on the moon. It is a genuine source of amazement to me to the extent to which the NASA booster or rocket program of the 1960s was a continuation of the work that was started at Pinamunda in 1937. In fact, at the time of the Apollo program, the director of the Marshall Space Flight Center in Huntsville was, of course, Werner von Braun, but also almost all of the heads of the divisions of the center were Germans who had worked with Werner von Braun since the time of Peenemund. So in a very real sense, the story of Werner von Braun is the story of how humans initially left the planet. The move to Texas set up a truly strange situation in which the German scientists were in a bizarre kind of limbo regarding their status. They were not immigrants, but they were also not foreign visitors. They were quite literally guests of the U.S. Army, and in the early years, they were not even allowed to leave the base at Fort Bliss without U.S. Army escort. They began to refer to themselves as, quote-unquote, prisoners of peace, since they could not be prisoners of war as the war had ended. By the end of 1950, they were finally offered the opportunity to officially immigrate to the United States and to take civilian jobs with the U.S. government and to bring their families to the United States. An amazing number chose to do so. Based on what I have read, many didn't so because, honestly, they wanted to continue to work on von Braun's team and to work for Werner von Braun himself. As for the work that the team was doing, for the first five years, the work for the U.S. Army did not differ that much from the work they had done for the German Wehrmacht. 
Their job was to assemble, test, and improve A-4 rockets. The U.S. had captured sufficient quantities of the Finnish rockets and parts that the team in Fort Bliss spent literally years testing and launching rockets that had already been built in Germany during the war. The primary aim of the project was to develop a U.S. ballistic missile that was capable of delivering a nuclear warhead. And it's here that we need to acknowledge the debt that the modern space program owes to, frankly, the Manhattan Project. Without the atomic bomb, there might never have been a rocket designed to leave the Earth's atmosphere, really. The experience of the V-2 rocket had shown that the effort required to launch a ballistic missile was really not worth the destructive effect that it had at the other end. The payload of the V-2 was limited to much less than what an aircraft could carry, and to put it bluntly, the guidance system of the missile was crude enough that if damage was done to any specific target, it would probably be more from good luck and random chance than anything else. It was only when the destructive power of the atomic bomb was married to the ballistic missile that the technology made any military sense at all. But once that connection was made, it was clear that the ability to deliver nuclear warheads from hundreds and eventually thousands of miles away became a critical strategic weapon and a matter of gravest national security. Despite the fact that the paper clippers were only in the United States to help the Army develop weapons, von Braun and his team continued to focus beyond the Earth's atmosphere. One Pinamunda veteran, Hans Klein, later remembered, In the early days, Fort Bliss produced what I believe was the first moon flight trajectory by hand calculation and vector diagrams. We had a lot of fun doing it, unquote. Finally, in 1950, the U.S. Army decided to stop the experiments with World War II German technology and stand up its own ballistic missile program, complete with its own development center at the Redstone Arsenal in Huntsville, Alabama. In 1950, von Braun and still 115 German paper clippers moved themselves and their family to the Redstone Arsenal. They arrived, as one observer put it, Quote, with the U.S. space program in their briefcases, only we didn't know it at the time. Unquote. Here, work began in earnest on the first American ballistic missile, the Redstone, which would eventually launch both the first U.S. satellite and the first U.S. astronaut. At the time, however, it was designed as a weapon delivery vehicle. Not surprisingly, given the design team, the Redstone was a direct descendant of the V-2. Early versions still used a combination of liquid oxygen as oxidizer and alcohol as fuel. Perhaps the biggest change from the V-2 was that the propulsion unit, consisting of the rocket engine and nozzle, separated from the main body of the rocket, allowing the rocket and its payload to travel further. Although this was not a true example of staging of a rocket, it was a nod to the tyranny of the mathematical formulation of the rocket equation that those of you who have listened to the original episode on rocket science, and if you haven't, go do that right now. We'll wait. At any rate... The point is that the rocket equation tells you that every single gram of mass that you lug around that is not eventually used to generate thrust is effectively not only wasted, but preventing you from achieving the velocity that is needed to get to and stay in orbit. Given that rocket fuel and oxidizer are typically substances that are nasty, brutish, toxic, and prone to spontaneously combust, the vessels that hold them need to be um, robust, which typically means heavy. Heavy. 
So rocket engineers rapidly figured out that in order to achieve the speeds needed to achieve orbit, a staged rocket was going to be required. A staged rocket consists of multiple rockets stacked on top of one another. Each stage has its own engine and its own propellants and propellant tanks. The job of the first stage is to lift uh, and, more importantly, accelerate the second and subsequent stages. When the first stage uses up its propellant, it is jettisoned, along with the empty propellant tanks, before the second stage ignites, meaning that the new second stage motor is not only already moving at a significant velocity, but also that it's hauling around a lot less dead mass, making it all that much easier to achieve the delta V needed to get to orbit. Although the Redstone was not a truly multi-stage rocket, the next generation of rocket produced by the Army Ballistic Missile Agency was a truly multi-stage rocket named Jupiter, which consisted of the Redstone-derived first stage and a solid rocket second and third stages. With the development of the Jupiter, Werner von Braun in the U.S. was finally poised to go to space. But in the U.S., the Eisenhower administration was not interested not interested, that is, until the 4th of October, 1957, and the launch of Sputnik. But that is, quite literally, a story for another day, and one that we'll take up in part two of this discussion of the first Terranauts. Next time, we'll pick up here and talk about Sputnik and how it marked a time when the craft of being a Terranaut started to shift from being all about getting to space and branched out to include what to do when we get there. To do that, we'll take a look at the story of another famous Terranaut, one who arguably invented the concept of mission control as we know it today, Gene Krantz. Until then... Please consider supporting the podcast by rating and reviewing it on your favorite podcast server, recommending it to a friend, or responding by giving us some feedback. I'll look forward to hearing from you, and I'll talk to you again soon. Come on, let's keep the chatter down.